Welcome to Page, the podcast where writers dissect a single page of their book. I'm your host, Abby Hollick, and each week I'll be speaking to a different best-selling memoirist or non-fiction writer about their most frank, moving, or hilarious page. I pick the standout page that examines a breakthrough moment and invite the author to dig deeper. Along the way, we learn a thing or two about how to survive and cope with whatever life flings at us. Clover Stroud is an author who is not afraid to look at the blood, guts and bones of life. To read her books is to get up close to the edge and stare unflinchingly at life and death. Clover is fascinated by how trauma shapes us. She's written incredibly openly about her teenage experience of trauma in her memoir The Wild Other, which details her mother's riding accident, which left her severely brain damaged for 22 years until her death in 2013. Her second book, My Wild and Sleepless Nights, was rated one of the best books of 2020 by The Observer and The Sunday Times, and is a searingly honest account of how motherhood feels as she shines a light on the joy and messiness and hormones of it all, of bringing up five children. In December 2019, Clover's sister Nell died at the age of 46 to breast cancer, just days before she'd been given years to live. Clover's new book, The Red of My Blood, will be published in March 2022 and charts her fearless journey through that first year of grief and shock. This lyrical book bravely examines how Clover learned to live alongside and survive unbearable loss and violent thoughts. The writer Elizabeth Gilbert sums it up best. Clover Stroud understands more about loss, sorrow, grief and resilience than most people will ever have to learn. She is a gift and so is her work. Clover, thank you so much for coming on page. Thank you. It's quite moving hearing all that. Actually, oh. sitting here feeling quite emotional just listening to the introduction. <laughs> How are you? How are you today? I'm fine. I'm fine. Yes. I'm um I'm I'm good. I'm good. Good. So, on this podcast we always start with a page and it's just a chance to go deeper deeper inside that page and it kind of explode it and look at it piece by piece and for you I've picked page 113 such an honor to 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 read an early copy of the red of my blood so could you read read that section thank you yeah however predictable however inevitable her death was still a complete shock a total shock Even when we went for those appointments in grey hospitals, waiting outside, giggling, experiencing what we both knew was a type of latent hysteria. Even when we walked out of those hospital appointments, when it felt as if trapdoors had suddenly been flung open, because the oncologist tipped his head slightly and said, there are still options, his voice trailing off, because what could he say? That after the last option, two steps from there, a matter of months, the next option was death. There was a moment, walking out of the hospital, when my sister was told for the first time that now she had secondary cancer, when she had to press her palm to her forehead as we stood beside the car. She was in her long fur coat and she stood holding the car door handle in the rain. We had not said anything aloud to one another, but quivering in the air between us like a bubble was the thought that this moment was the worst moment. I had felt as if I was in a broken world, a terrible world. But now I realised that actually it was a great moment. 
for we were there, still together. Death hadn't actually come between us yet. I wish I had known then that that moment was actually one of the best. I wish I had known then that the day I was living inside with my sister after her terminal diagnosis was actually everything that life was and all and everything I wanted now. She was still there inside that day. A day is a good long time when you don't have any of them left. Oh, thank you so much. Are you okay, Clover? Yeah, yeah, it's just... um. I mean, when I write, I try and really describe exactly what sensations of life feel like, what it feels like to be human. And I'm and I'm often looking at the the most painful stuff because that's kind of what really interests me. So when I read it back, I re feel the whole thing. So it is it's painful and emotional reading it for sure. Well, I picked it because I've. I felt that line, I had felt as if I was in a broken world, a terrible world, but now I realise that actually it was a great moment, for we were there, still together, and I think that sums up beautifully how how painful that, that the world might seem in that moment, but, but on reflection, now you're the other side of death, you see that that time is so precious, and I wonder if we can ever feel or know that in that moment without hindsight. I know, and it's something that I'm trying to learn, I suppose, in my life as I go forward about the kind of preciousness of the time that we have. And it's such a difficult thing to sort of get your head around, really, and live within, because obviously we can't live in every single moment as if it's our last moment. And that sort of instruction to, you know, live your each day as if it's you know, your last day, as it were, that would be impossible. It'd be lead to an exhausting, impossible life. But I think I'm really aware when I'm talking to friends, and sadly, there are so many who's, who have people they love who have cancer, and cancer is such a big killer, obviously, that that kind of instruction to try and enjoy the days that you have, and not anticipate the grief too much, which is coming, and try and kind of be present in those days, I feel I've learned that because of living through those four years. My sister was diagnosed and she died four, four years later. And you're living with so much anticipatory grief because you kind of know what's coming. But then in a way, life is a, is a <laughs> anticipatory grief, I think is really interesting. But we're all living with the knowledge that we're going to die, aren't we? I mean, that's the only sure bit of knowledge that we have about any of us, which unites all of us. We're all going to die. We just don't know how fast you know we're heading to that destination um and so that was what I was really trying to communicate was that feeling of even when you're living with sorrow then there is complete joy in that in the presence of one another and I'd do anything to go back to be in hospital with Nell as she was being diagnosed even though it's a terrible and terrifying place to be you are alive together for a bit and that's you know when you're dealing with somebody's death that feeling of the loss of that person, the absolute categorical loss of that person they've gone is mm. the thing that really kind of really breaks you. Um, so I hope, I don't know, I hope that might be useful to people, I suppose. I mean, what that's also what I'm really trying to do in my writing is to connect with other people in, in their experiences. So is there almost anything, if you plant yourself back kind of outside that car mm. after that news, is mm. there... I think regret and wishing for things and wishing you said things as everyone to a certain degree goes through that. 
but is there something you wish you'd done differently realized at the time like as you said realize well we're still here together we can still yeah go to the pub now or <laughs> I don't know no we did and we did I mean uh, you know I remember now actually joking saying I really love the days when I get really bad news because we always do something together and on that day we went back to a field where we spent a lot of time when we were kids because we grew up in the country so <clears throat> we went and walked around this really beautiful meadow and it had a really beautiful day even though we'd been told that Nell had secondary cancer that was not a very good prognosis at all that she had a very limited amount of time and then there was another day when she had some bad news and we went and I mean she was so much so funny and she was such a brilliant big character but we went I took my one of my children over and she had bought this Cadillac and we went out in her Cadillac <laughs> and the Cadillac broke down and we had this really really funny day and it was the same day that you know she'd been told the cancer had spread again so I suppose you know, I wish that I could do more of was to just like tell her that I love her. And if there are opportunities to be together, to do something, you know, I remember her texting me a few months before she died saying, oh, let's meet for lunch. And I couldn't because I was on a deadline. And now I look back at that and I just, I regret that greatly. And um, I suppose what I would, I would say to myself before is just take every single opportunity to have fun to have a laugh and even if you're you know dealing with a terminal diagnosis you can still as you say go to the pub or go to the field or go and buy donuts or whatever it is you know but do do something together and be together so I suppose I wish I wish I'd spent more time together in the last few years but there is also light you know I've got five kids she had two kids in a circus we had got busy lives so it's quite difficult to constantly be seeing each other and normal life has to go on as well but I suppose to celebrate the moments is you know would be my advice to myself before. It's quite interesting that that's your advice to yourself but it sounds like that's exactly what you did then if you got in that car and went to the meadow where you yeah yeah I suppose I suppose the thing is she died very suddenly in 2019 and she we actually did think that she had quite a bit more time a few years more time but she died very quickly and I guess and this is one of the things I write about there's never going to be enough moments are there you know you sort of think I just wish I could have had another two years or I wish I could have another five years we could have like seen our children go up a bit more we could have but it's never going to be enough there's always going to be I was talking to a friend whose father had died when he was 80 and I felt quite envious of her. And she was saying, I just really would love to see him some more. And of course she would. He was, you know, her her dad, I felt envious because he got to live to, to 80 and Nell only got to live to 46. You're never going to feel, right, yes, everything's tied up nicely <laughs> and I'm ready mm. for the end of this. It's just not going to happen. I think same with the conversations. No one's ever going to have had all the right conversations about death before. Yeah, because you're living life. And I mean, just in a really kind of banal example, so many times I meet with friends and I'm like, I must ask them about, you know, that holiday they went on or that that job. Or, and then the conversation goes in complete and we, you leave and you're like, yeah, still don't know how our work's going. Yeah. But that, does, that wasn't, it didn't mean you didn't have a great chat. Like, of course, there are so many conversations about death that you didn't have with her because you were having other conversations. Yeah, and we didn't actually talk about death because she had cancer and then once somebody has cancer or has a terminal disease or doesn't want to talk about death it may be just because they don't want to talk about death you can't make somebody do it and I she didn't <clears throat> want to talk about 
her prognosis really. She didn't want to talk about her treatment. She was quite amazing in the way she dealt with it all. And it was took up huge, you know, a huge part of her life. But she really wanted to concentrate on her work and her children. And I, for me, selfishly now, I would, I wish that I'd had more conversations with her about what do you think happens next, and what you know, how do I communicate with you later? Can I communicate with you when you die? And that has changed my life because I do definitely talk about death a lot more and I talk about it with my kids and I talk about it with my husband and I try and bring death into my life in a way to make my life more vivid now and I suppose also to make the people who will be left I mean not wanting to be morbid but like I just want to have a I want if I died I want the kids to kind of be cool with knowing knowing what I think about it knowing what I think about whether there's an afterlife and knowing what I think about how to kind of celebrate somebody so we go to Nell's grave a lot we take a picnic or we just stand there in the rain and have an argument with each other or we go to the pub there's a really good pub just beside really close to where she's buried we go and muck around if we're just passing by. I really want to try and make it like normal. So it's not a sort of strange, frightening, separate place that you go to. Because, you know, we don't know what happens. And that's one of the things that I write about in the book. I'd like to say, well, yes, I see her in every butterfly, but pff, I don't know whether I do. And I, I have beliefs about, you know, what I think happens next, but there's no certainty about anything. And there is no certainty in the way that you can communicate with each other after death. And, you know, I've spent a lot of time in the last few months trying to talk to Nell, like just standing outside talking to her. And you're met with this kind of <laughs> resounding silence. Of course you are. You're not going to be, you know, there's not going to be some kind of big cosmic voice that's going to answer you, much so you kind of want it to happen. But I do know that I can communicate with her in the way that I live and in the way that I sort of take my children forward and the way that I celebrate life I suppose and so I would really I just think having as much conversation as possible about death and about the big stuff and when people say oh I can't talk about death you know I don't want to talk about it unless there's you know a specific reason like they are very ill Nell did sometimes say to me I just can't talk about it I, it's too painful but I think trying to have as many of those conversations before the terminal diagnosis is probably a really really useful thing in life and I'm really hoping that this book might kind of open up more of those conversations and how have your kids and husband reacted when you want people to sort of come along with you in on that conversation do you meet much resistance or is it it's almost like you said when there's no terminal diagnosis there it's a safe yeah look at reality yeah no I think I mean my children are like some of them are quite they're five seven nine eighteen and twenty one so you can have some really quite interesting conversations <laughs> with them because there's so many of them and because they have such, you know, kooky and interesting and out there thoughts about it because they're kids, you know, some of them are kids and then the grown up ones, you can have really interesting debate about it. So to totally normalise it, you know, it's not a like, okay, we're going to sit down and talk about death, but there might be just a chat about something which could be funny or could be morbid. And one of my children just thinks that you die and there is absolutely nothing else at all. And that's it. And she's quite sort of strict about that and then one of my children is really into God and really strongly believes in God and the other one you know they have really different views so 
you know, I also talk about sex. I think it's really important that we talk about sex when we talk about death because these are two things that everyone pretends are not happening and they are the two things that are happening to absolutely everybody. And I think it's easier for everybody and it's easier for kids and young people to kind of communicate with the world when they sort of know what these things are and they feel relaxed about talking about them and it's not a kind of you know it's not an embarrassment and sex and death embarrass people a lot so I think we're quite yeah we're relaxed and they (laughs) they know that it's what I do you know I definitely (laughs) mum again (laughs) sex and death (laughs) I mean seriously that's what it's like (laughs) well it's the silence that brings the shame doesn't it if you can normalize it and voice it um so just to sort of do a bit of a deep dive into that passage if you're okay to kind of go back to to that moment just it's just sort of one description but just that long fur coat I mean I never got to meet Nell but read so much about her and she just sounds so effortlessly cool and and glamorous and I know to you she would have been your sister and not that kind of outside circus person but but was she very cool she was um you know, she was my sister and she, as you say, and she was, she was a real enigma. People think that they have an idea about what she was like because of the circus. And she wasn't anything like the kind of persona that you think of as razzmatazz and sawdust and grease paint and sequins. She was really, really serious and extremely funny in a serious way and very, very eccentric and unusual. And she was very glamorous. I mean, she loved spending like a lot of money. She would drop a lot of money on clothes. I buy all my clothes from charity shops in the high street, whereas Nell wanted to go to Versace and that's where she liked, like Gucci. But just before she died, she'd bought this like amazing Gucci green sequined shell shell suit because we were doing an interview and she said I've got absolutely nothing to wear I've got to go I've got to go to Bister Village and buy some clothes so she went and spent thousands of pounds on clothes and then a few months later I was actually clearing out all her clothes and went into her wardrobe and was really laughing with my stepmother who was there because she said I've got absolutely she actually said I've actually got fuck all to wear and there was like rails (laughs) rails of designer clothes and some of it unworn actually so she was Really, really unusual person. And I don't think she would ever say that she was cool. And I think it's difficult to think of your siblings, really, or any of your family as anything other than your your siblings. But I suppose in death, I do get more of a perspective of how unusual she was. And we also had an incredibly normal sister relationship and we fought really, really hard and had huge arguments and like fell out about things and then would just pick up our friendship again really quickly without having to, you know, just as, sib- as sisters do, basically. Pete, my husband, he said, Nell always looks like a hip-hop star because you wear, like, massive gold jewellery and huge shades, and she had the, the fur coats were, like, you know, long, floor-length, um, really extravagant fur coats that she wore. But she'd wear them in quite a kind of shy way, in a funny sort of way. So, um I guess she was really good. She was genuinely really cool rather than trying to be cool. She genuinely was like, you know, very, very unusual and like very, very creative and very, yeah, she was enigmatic, definitely. And did the world of circus always intrigue her? 
Yeah, so when we were kids, she um she was always really into it and she, you know, we shared a bedroom for years and years until our like early adolescence really and she had all these toy monkeys and the whole bedroom would be kind of decorated with toy monkeys and we had a really beautiful childhood growing up in the country with lots of animals and and she'd always be like making the rabbit, our pet rabbits, dressing them up in clothes and making them like making them a little show jumping course or doing quite eccentric things. And we were asked to, to do a children's party for some like much younger friends when we were probably about 11 and 13. And we put on a circus. It was actually Nell's like first circus. And she did a poster. She did it. And my dad's got it. It's very beautiful. She did a poster and everything for it. So and even when then she went to university at university, circus really obsessed her. And she 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 turned circus into an art form so she did a she did a circus of war and peace for example she took really really unusual themes and turned them into circuses and you know she'd have people sending their kind of audition tapes in and they were like a girl who could do dancing on roller skates or something like that and she would put them into a like an 18th century riding clothes or something and then get her doing roller skating so she'd be combining really really interesting ideas of like modern dance, but then with really beautiful old fashioned costumes and then, you know, really surprising Elton John song or something like that to go with it. It was surprising the way she put dance, visuals, music together. And that's what made it so incredible. Did she find any, I don't know if this is a weird way to put it, but creativity in dying? No, I think it's a very, very good question and it's not a weird way at all. She was really, although she didn't want to talk about it, she did paint it. I think that she painted it. And in the last, I mean, she was a very creative person. She was always painting, sewing, writing. She wrote several books. But in the last four years of her life, from when she got her diagnosis, her, her output of art really, you know, really, really excelled, basically. And she did a lot of quite dark... She had a really bad time. She had a breakdown in 2017. And she did a lot of very kind of quite dark pictures about death and then she came through that and then in 2018 2019 she created some really 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 incredible beautiful artwork which is also looking at death but it's about the circus so her way of kind of embracing death she knew she was going to die was to create around it rather than talk about it yeah that's interesting it's almost like you don't need to always talk about stuff with words there's painting and there's different ways of communicating it. Do you have a specific memory of writing this passage I've picked and of realising that those moments were great moments and they were precious moments? They weren't just broken and terrible because that's such a profound realisation. Mm. Um, writing the book was a really profound experience. It was really extraordinary. I wrote it very quickly. I wrote it during lockdown, so I had all the children at home and... Uh, I started it in the summer of 2020, a few months after Nella died. And I was actually working on something else when she died. And then I just realized I had been in the room with death, with her death. And I I couldn't not explore that. I'm really interested by the feelings of life. And so, the, you know, such a profound thing to go through. And being close to death affected me so, so strongly as it does 
pretty everybody who has you know experienced the death of somebody they really love but when I was writing the book it was I don't really know where that book came from you know that book just poured out of me I almost wrote it out and I mean I I have a brilliant editor and we did edit it but there was the work was just coming coming out of me and the feelings the way of describing what was happening were just sort of poured out of me but I was thinking a lot about where she had gone how to communicate with her what I would you know what I would have done differently what I would do again what I wish I could say to her and I was I actually think that lockdown and the fact that I wasn't out in the world chatting with people and having to kind of go about normal life that we were in a completely abnormal time was probably really good for my writing and the kind of intensity of what we were all living through and the fact there was a lot of talk about grief and about death and about loss, I think kind of accentuated the creative process and has helped me to understand the creative process as well, that it's the kind of intensity of it and and the amount of thinking that has to go on. I have this image in my head that when I'm writing, what I'm trying to do is to be like a diver. You know, when you see a diver jumping off the edge of the boat and they're all They've got like an oxygen tank on and they're they're in a full wetsuit with flippers. Mm. That's what I feel like I'm doing when I'm writing. I'm trying to go to the deepest place in the ocean and find some kind of truth there. Um, mm. And so I don't, I mean, yeah, I do. I remember I, I wrote the vast majority of the book in exactly where I'm sitting now, which is in my bedroom uh, mm. in front of my bright green wallpaper. But I was living through you know, whole worlds of pain and trauma in my head while I was doing that. But that is what is so beautiful and so extraordinary about creativity is that you can kind of turn it into something else and turn it into something meaningful and beautiful. And Mm -hmm. it was interesting when I was writing the bit about the funeral, I said the days after the funeral, I said, I actually don't want to write. And I say this in the book, I don't want to preserve these days in beautiful words, words, because the days after the funeral were just so bleak and so, so... It was just like being like an iceberg melting. There was nothing left of me at all. And I was aware that when I... The other stuff that I was writing about, of the pain of it, of facing it and looking for her and trying to talk to her, was something that I wanted to preserve. I did want to kind of create something beautiful around this experience and around, you know, when somebody dies life has gone wrong there has something awful has happened but it is also life and it is going to happen to everybody and if i could try and put onto the page what that felt like then then and the colors you know for me it was a very colorful time as well it's very you're sort of sensually completely awake and you're in a a cosmic space you're in a really cosmic space which is not like the other days of your life you know the the time straight after death which goes on long time the book is over the first year but I still have moments of it now but you know the beginning bit after she died those first few months are they're really extraordinary I suppose as well they're incredibly bleak and dark but they are really extraordinary and you do see something of life that you don't see on the nor you know the kind of normal days yeah I think the color and the cosmic world is uh, everything you've just said I mean that just really clearly comes across and those early days when you kind of describe yourself in the kitchen as I think is it that you say you're shuffling or that your shoulders are you can barely your posture's completely changed and it's like you're turning in on yourselves and you kind of can't move in a clover way anymore and I I found as a parent of three 
small children like the idea of how you go through that and butter toast or get the lego out i couldn't i found that your two worlds colliding this trauma and this cosmic brightly colored world at the bottom of the ocean and then the the fast paced homeschooling lego world of it i mean how i mean describe it beautifully but what on earth was that like how how do you grieve with with childcare? <laughs> it's almost like there needs to be homes that people could, be parents of small children can go and just grieve in a bedroom before making dinner. I know, and also how do you grieve? You know, how do you grieve that that question of what do you do? What do you do with these feelings? These feelings are huge. They're massive. You know, it made me think of like a kind of stone not stone age like an iron age burial ground you know when they find like the the horses and the chariots and the slaves all buried underground I wanted to be buried I wanted to like (laughs) bury myself with my children (laughs) or to send a ship into the middle you know a flaming ship into the middle of the ocean what those kind of Mm. ancient rituals which we so lack now and we need when we're going through big stuff is part of the sort of what I'm trying to manifest, I suppose, when I'm writing the book as well, my version of the flaming Viking ship sent out into the middle of the sea is my is my book I'm sending out, I suppose. I felt as I was walking around the house and I'd been poisoned by something and nobody else. My kids were, of course, incredibly sad, but they, it's different from losing your sister. It just is mm-hmm. different. And... Um, you feel as though you've got this thing inside you that you don't sort of want to tell people about because it will, you don't want them to know what's happening inside you because it will, you don't want to kind of ruin their day at the same time. And so it's an extremely exhausting place to be. And I think kind of kindness and care for people in that space is really important. Just as like, you know, I really think it's so, I'm not the first person to have said this, but it's so similar to the the time after giving birth as well. And, and, and we very much bust back into normal life, you know, with our newborn baby under our arm. But actually it's really, you've been, when you're up close with death, as when you're up close with birth, you've been to a really, really profound s- space and you need to kind of treat that with some, treat yourself with some respect and, and care afterwards. Mm. And it's difficult. It's difficult in normal life. And it's really difficult when you've got small kids. At the same time, the kids do kind of like pull you up and keep you going. And, mm. you know, they do. I like the bits in the book where I'm writing about walking around the house, having some really massive, profound feeling. And the children are like having a spitting competition <laughs> or throwing their throwing their shoes down the stairs. There's all this like these disparate worlds going on at the same time. But that's life, isn't it? Yes, and you're so right. That's that kind of that tough part is also the exact part that pulls pulls you through. Yeah. Do you feel through something? Does it work like that? Yes, I mean the fact that I can it's a really good question. The fact that I can sit here and talk to you about this now means that I am I am, you know, I use the analogy of a forest in the book and the idea that you're like trying to find your way through the brambles and the the path is really snaked and confusing and you think you're making progress and then you, you snake back and you turn around. And I wanted to record what that bit was like because it isn't, because it does change after the first year. So I do feel as though I am through something and the fact that I can talk to you about Nell and that I can have some sense of, what's gone on means that something has been processed but that kind of the act of processing and carrying the grief is something I will do for the rest of my life for sure but 
the weight of what I was carrying has changed. And sometimes it's very, 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 very heavy still. And sometimes it's like a little pebble you can put in your pocket. But I do feel as though I have got somewhere. And I hope people reading the book will... After Nell died, I just felt so distraught. I thought I was going to die. And I wanted to... I wanted to sort of communicate that you don't die. It does change, that mm. you, you know, you, you do cope with it in an extraordinary way and it changes your life and brings great pain to your life, but it also brings great light and colour and kind of awareness to your life too. And that's the, that's the thing that we take forward, you know, and that sense of the way that we cherish the memories and cherish the kind of thoughts about that person. That's the stuff that we, that's the only stuff that we can take forward. But I hope there is something positive in that. Did you go to quite a few of the hospital appointments with now? Yeah, I went to, I went to quite a lot of them. I didn't go to, one of the things that I find really difficult is that when Nell was ill, so she was diagnosed in 2015 and I had children in 2012, 14 and 16. So in those years, I had a very young family and I've got two other children as well. So, and I work. So I was dealing with, and during that time, my husband had a, in 2017, my husband had a life-changing accident where he was in a wheelchair for several months. So we had a lot of stuff going on and I wish that life could have been different. I wish, oh God, I wish that she, um, you know, I wish... I just wish I'd had a bit more time. That's what we were talking about earlier. I wish I'd, I wish she'd died in her fifties, not her forties. I mean, I wish she'd died in her nineties, not her forties. But I wish we'd, it had been like in our fifties because I even now the demands of my kids are much l are less intense. I had a newborn baby and toddlers, and you know what it's like. You can't really mm -hmm. do anything. You can't. And so going to lots and lots of hospital appointments was a very difficult thing to do. Um, and I went to what I could go to. And also at t sometimes me and Nell were falling out and having, you know, what just because she was dying didn't mean that we suddenly stopped arguing. I think that's a really important thing to remember as well. You go on being sisters. We had a massive row a few months before she died. And I think kind of understanding that I suppose that normal life goes on and and that uh, that's okay you know you only do what you can do and there's a bit when I wrote about the meeting with the oncologist and he said that every single family of somebody who's died of cancer feels like they could have done more and they could have gone to more meetings but you you have to live your own life as well and I mean I wish I had she died so quickly she died in two days it was just it was just not okay how quickly it all happened and I wish there'd been more time but I think that probably for her the fact that she died within two days meant she didn't would it have been harder if you were told you had a month to live you told you have three months to live what do you do if you're told you have three months to live she was told she had a day to live she in the autumn of before she died, she went on holiday with her partner to Cuba, who's he's Cuban. She was in Switzerland buying horses. She was in France for her work. She was in France seeing circuses. She was really, really living. So the last three months of her life, I think, were really happy. And if she'd been told, you're going to die in three months' time, she probably wouldn't have been happy. So it might have made me, it might have been given me more time to talk to her and see her, but... 
I think it was better for her that she didn't have that. And it was, yeah, it was. Li- she was literally told that she had a day. She had a day to live and that was it. And it actually really suits Nell because she, she was a very dramatic person and she had a really, really incredible death. Like if you could stage manage your own death, then you would stage manage what happened to her. Everyone was with her. She looked incredibly beautiful. Everybody who really loved her was there. It wasn't a long suffering drawn out period it was it was fast it was profound it was beautiful it was incredibly spiritual it was Mm. extraordinary it was you know she was an extraordinary person and it was extraordinary but um she's still dead you know I still would like to talk to her now I'd like to talk to her so much there are so many things I want to talk to her about so many times I want to like talk to her about the things that are happening because she's died, but I can't because she's died. And there are so many things that I want to talk to her about to do with our childhood or to do with our past. We had a complicated adolescence onwards of dealing with what happened to our mum, you know, and nobody understands. Nobody went through that in the same way with me. And, you know, the loneliness of, of dealing with that. It's lonely. It's really, really lonely dealing with the death of somebody who you've been incredibly close to. Is a, is, a, is, a, is a path only you can walk, you know, you can't, nobody can do it for you. And, um, and that's sad, you know, for all of the positive stuff that we take forward, all the light, all the kind of extraordinary awakenings, it's really fucking sad. And, you know, my brain kind of like, I still, my brain thinks, nah, like, Nell's dead, Nell can't be dead. She was, Nell can't be dead. You know, that feeling of like, no, 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 that's all wrong. And sometimes my brain is actually like, we'll do that. It'll go into kind of this trippy place where it won't, it refuses to accept that she's dead. And I'll be thinking, I'll be saying to myself in a kind of quite weird way, no, you can't talk to her because she's dead. And the other part will be going, nah, she's not dead. (laughs) You know, and it's really psychologically what you go through is, it's mighty, it really is. But I think you're admitting something quite to yourself in a way to say that it is just fucking painful because to keep striving for some part of it to get better is, I can imagine that path of the striving to change a fact is going to only lead to more more pain. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah. that that acceptance that it, that you tussle with, accepting it, I feel lets the brain sort of just miss her and, and know that this is painful rather than fight the reality of it. I think, imagine the fighting phase is utterly exhausting. Yeah, it is, it is totally, totally exhausting. And I think that that was when I was waking up and thinking about her all the time and like trying to figure out where the person has gone. Where has she gone? Where are you? You know, is... Yeah, because you're like a detective in the book. You're like, you're going to crack this case. Yeah, yeah. And you feel as though there must be some kind of secret as to how to deal with this. And I remember in the, and this is a big motivation for writing the book is like, I couldn't find anything. There are certain books that people refer to you like C.S. Lewis, A Grief Observed and Joan Didion, A Year of Magical Mm. Thinking. Those are kind of like, when you think I've got to read something about, you know, I need a kind of, I need some help here with this. And those are the books that people refer to. And I, I couldn't find something which was overtly about the feelings of what I was going through and how I was going to survive it and how I wasn't going to die. Because you feel as though like the the pain is unbearable. It just felt like I can't, I cannot bear this. I cannot carry this pain. So I suppose I wanted to, 
record what it was like, you know, what that felt like and how you do bear unbearable things. And I also talk about, you know, a little bit about the high, which I do think is true, the kind of hierarchy of grief when the lady came to see me whose son had died and that kind of, she's bearing unbearable pain. Her adolescent son had been killed. And, you know, you almost want to like, when she was sitting in my kitchen, I almost want to sort of touch her face and is she real? You know, is she, how is she holding this pain within her body? And we talked mm. and we spent a day talking and and I kind of write a bit about the fact that the kind of miracle of it as well, because there is something miraculous about the fact that life just rolls onwards you know it just keeps going and that's terrible it's terrifying and absolutely awful and feels so wrong but it's also completely miraculous and extraordinary and absolutely right so last question really what what do you do as you said that there are days where it's kind of a pebble in your pocket but then there are much much heavier days Mm. on those days I'm sort of thinking of anyone listening in a similar space is there something that you do to distract yourself from that pain or yeah I actually don't I mean there are things that you can do you know we have practices don't we like mindfulness or hot baths or running or yoga reading scented candles you know but I think for me the best thing that I have found is not to distract yourself but to go into it that it won't always feel like that every day. And sometimes getting the photographs out of the person or finding something which has got their handwriting or thinking deeply about them and allowing yourself to kind of, to just like stand amongst the pain, to just like, to let it kind of permeate you almost like those you know people don't really go to tanning salon or maybe they do I don't know but that thing of I remember going to a tanning salon where you lie in a a light box and it just all goes into you it's almost a bit like that just allow it Mm. just allow it to go into every single part of you and feel it in every single part of you and it will hurt but it will stop and it won't and the the pain won't actually destroy you and if you know that you can withstand it then I think that you kind of feel the person more clearly and I actually I love talking about her I love remembering her I post about her a lot on my Instagram because I like other people knowing about her in a way I sometimes find it easier to talk to complete strangers about her than I do with my family it's almost like I can sort of tell people tell people about her so I think sharing your thoughts about that person is a really positive and beautiful thing to do but also feeling the pain and then giving yourself a break from it as well sometimes you know sometimes I know I can't go and look at her photos it's too I'm not going to do that now because it's it hurts too much and other times I want to be I want to feel it I want to feel it all so it depends what you're kind of feeling you can withstand at that moment. And sometimes I just want to have a laugh about her or remember how annoying she could be. Like sometimes me and my dad talk and like, you know, she was a human being as well. She was a really extraordinary person, but she was also really maddening and and just a normal human. And so, yeah, and there's never any perfect romantic, you know, picture of a person. We're all messy, all of it. Clover, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's been really, really nice talking. It's been really nice. It's really, it's been painful at times. I've wanted to cry sometimes when we were talking, but it's um, it's really 
I just think it's good to feel everything, and and it's been a, and it's really lovely to talk about Nell and remember her, and then it's also nice for me to remember what I've been through and what I've what I have withstood and what I have borne and what I am you know what I take forward, and so thank you, yeah. thank you very much. And I can hear in your voice when you talk about her. I mean, it's lovely to get an insight into that relationship, and like you said, there's no other relationship similar is there to growing up with someone sharing a room no and that that link to your childhood and the fact that it's like when you're kid you, you can see it in your own kids you know the absolute sort mm. of weird passionate closeness and fury and that they have with mm. each other and it's their world that and that world of childhood as siblings together is yeah it's something completely unique something completely mm. you know however much you know somebody is an adult Nothing is like a kind of sibling, a close sibling relationship. Yeah, I mean, that's my favourite part of having kids. Just observe. I'm obsessed with their relationships. It's fascinating. And how amazingly close it is one month and then the next month. Just not at all. And you're like, what What changed? And then it's back round again. And it keeps doing that. No, it's really, really interesting. It sort of makes you realise as well when you're having, you know, me and Nell have really big fights. And so then it makes me feel better about them now. And I felt guilty about them. So I think, well, look at Lester and Dash. They can be so close then just like furious with each other. Mm. And that's normal. And then they pick up again and they're fine. Mm. And, and that's being a sibling. And yeah, it's, it's amazing to observe them like little animals or something <laughs> Mm. like I always try and interject and stop and now recently I thought no let them mm. tear each other apart on those days mm. maybe that's just <laughs> what they need yeah <laughs> I just want to shut the door and move away yeah yeah thank you for listening to Paige if you've got a moment I'd love it if you could rate and review this episode to help me get the word out and keep the show going you can also find great photos and information about next episodes over on Twitter and Instagram at Abbyholic. Oh, and please subscribe. Did I say that? Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Page is a good tape production produced by me, Abby Holick. Original music by Paddy Jervis and Rob Sell for Torch and Compass. Sound engineer support from Hunter Charlton and Chris Sharp. Graphic design from Tim Hughes. Thanks, team. 